as we've mentioned earlier, what a glorious morning it is in so many ways. Perhaps the words of the 139th Psalm, the closing two verses of that chapter, ring in our hearts and in our minds this morning. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What a wonderful personal challenge that verse sets before each of us, not only on a Sunday morning, but every day, that we might always realize there's an all-seeing eye of God watching us with care, also with love. We're so thankful for each and every person assembled. We hope and trust our worship service in as much as we offer it in truth and in spirit will be pleasing unto our wonderful Heavenly Father. Brother Lester mentioned a moment ago in the announcements about the slight change in the evening service, so I would ask that we, we keep that decision of our elders in mind that tonight we'll be meeting a half hour later and also at a different, at a different location at the uh, Willow Avenue Church of Christ facilities. So we look forward to not only assembling with them, but also appreciating, of course, another lesson in their summer series as a little bit of a, a, a premonition, I guess, or a little advanced information, that lesson tonight will surround the single word wisdom. So let's study tonight a little bit about wisdom again at the 6 o'clock hour. The nature of God's commandments. As you can see on the wall to my left, that's the title of our lesson this morning. I wonder what it is about the nature of God's commands. I suppose much might be said, and our thoughts for the next few moments will move in a particular direction. I hope highlighting in each of us a keen appreciation and a renewed zeal and interest for the sweet, special character of God's commandments. The 105th verse of that longest chapter in all the Bible reads, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And Brother Glenn just led us in a number of songs, all of which directed us to thinking about the special character, the sweet blessing that is the Holy Bible. We sang about the precious book divine. We sang about the wonderful words of life. And may I suggest as we study about some of the features of that book, we're going to focus the spotlight on its commandments. To do that, look at that next set of ideas on that opening slide. We all know that the Bible is the Word of God. We appreciate the special character of that book above all others. But yet one of the features that it contains are commandments. Today, why don't we study at least in general about some of them. Not any one in particular, but rather the way in which God would have us to view them. Let's do that with this opening set of thoughts. The opening statement on that next slide is one that may not come as a shock or surprise, but the very existence of commands from God to some is a stumbling point. There are those who reason God ought to accept anything that's offered to Him and He ought not be so demanding. He ought not be so commanding with respect to that which He's willing to accept. For that reason, again, some in our world stumble over God seems so demanding. His Word, the Bible, and many of them don't consider it so, but they claim that book is so full of orders and statutes and commandments. It is for that reason I would invite us to then study a little bit about the nature of what does that say about God who gives these commandments. As you can see, there are hundreds of commands in the Bible. In fact, some particular accounts I was able to discover label it as well into the thousands. 
Suffice it to say, the Word of God is filled with things that fall under a heading of thou shalt or thou shalt not. Commandments. Things that are not left to our consideration, but rather that are directly placed upon us. And if we're dutiful and obedient, we shall do them. Commandments. Why does God give commandments? Well, may I suggest, according to the Scriptures, at least these two thoughts are presented for our consideration. Note that first one. God does, of course, want that which is the best for His creation. That includes you and me. In fact, we are the zenith of His creation. Wasn't it true on that sixth day of His creative activity, after all the land animals and the various other features of inanimate character were brought into being, He created man. And it is especially said that He made man in His image. Genesis 1, 26 and 7. And God is motivated by love. Perfect, infinite, pure love. Are we not told in 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8, that the one who doesn't love doesn't know God, for God is love. It then stands to reason that God truly wants what is in the eternal best interest of His creation, you and me. Look at some of these verses like Proverbs 3, verse 12. There, there's an interesting pattern, an interesting parallel that's presented. You and I know that a father in love gives commands to his children. Son, daughter, do this. Don't do that. Why does the father do that? He doesn't do it out of spite. He doesn't do it out of any other particular thoughts or characteristics, at least if he is as he should. He wants that son or daughter to be the best citizen both in this world and the one beyond. And therefore, there are certain things that that child needs to learn about. Certain things that child needs to avoid. And so, Dad gives commandments. Is not our Heavenly Father in a similar predicament? In that, He knows there is an eternity resting beyond our life in the flesh, and He does not want us to conduct or behave ourselves here in a way to be regretful then. And so, He commands. Didn't He do that for Israel? He very powerfully asserted among the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt not steal. It is an affront to the nature of the respect for the personage of others if you steal from them. And so God says, don't do that. Thou shalt not commit adultery. There's something extraordinarily special and sacred about the character of that sexual intimacy. Each man has his own wife, each woman her own husband, and you don't take that which belongs to somebody else, even in that avenue of life. You safeguard the integrity of the family God has ordained and fashioned. One by one, the God of heaven has set forth those commandments because He knows it's in our best interest to appreciate them. However, you might also notice this thought. God is the infinite Creator. As such, His viewpoint, His perspective is absolutely ideal and perfect. And for that reason, it is His prerogative as Creator to express that which is His desire, that which is His preference. I'm reminded, aren't you, of texts like Isaiah 45, 12. It was on that occasion that God, speaking through Isaiah, said, I have made the earth. I have placed man upon it. He very clearly asserted he, by his creative activity, had accomplished it. But then he went on to say he'd stretched out the heavens 
and I have commanded them. Commanded them. By right of creation, He has authority to command. And that's still true today, my friend. It is God's prerogative, His right to command. And His viewpoint is ideal. His ideal, of course, is perfect. As we close that slide, might you and I then notice, in Psalm 147, verse number 5, His understanding is infinite. No human being can make that claim. You and I are fallible. We are mortal in regard to that thought. But God's understanding is infinite. That word carries the thought of being without bound, to be without fullness in terms of scope because all of it rests with Him. With regard to those things then, let's continue our study of His commandments. We've learned some thoughts about why He gives these commandments, the characteristic of it. But look at some of the additional features on this slide. Now that we've learned, or at least reminded ourselves about the existence of them, notice that they have been present throughout all the scope of human history. In fact, if one wished to continue the study even more thoroughly, it even extended before the beginning of human history. But let's begin in this early stage of time. As you and I open the Bible, the opening book of it, in fact, we come to the book of Genesis and we learn God gave commandments to Adam and to Eve. In Genesis 2, verse 16, after placing them in Eden, we recall that there the text says, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat. For in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And as that statement is presented, it's prefaced by the fact, And he commanded them. That was a commandment. I'm sure we've each given consideration to the number of particular trees in that garden, and yet out of all of them, no doubt that tree of knowledge of good and evil was exquisitely beautiful. No doubt its fruit was extraordinary to look upon. God says, don't you eat of it. Command was given. We understand in light of that commandment. That was the early stage of time, and you and I could list many other examples. Noah lived in that stage in time as well, and God gave him a command. Abram lived in that area in time, and God gave him commandments too. Those sweet patriarchs of the ancient era, like, again, Abraham and Isaac, they were recipients of God's commands. You'll notice then, again, in our day as well as then, Many times individuals aren't too happy about commandments. I like to do things my way. I don't want you and I don't need you to tell me what and how to do it. But yet those patriarchs, they were told what to do. Not only was that true in light of that early stage in time, go forward several hundred years. What about that era we call the Law of Moses, the Mosaic period? It too was filled with commandments that God gave to the children of Israel those whom He regarded as His chosen people. Those commandments, sometimes they obeyed them, and many times they didn't. I'm reminded of Solomon's refrain in 1 Kings 8.61. On that occasion when the temple was being put in its place to be used, it was a celebration of the construction of it. 
And on that occasion, as the temple, in fact, was finally being put in a place to be used, Solomon made note, God has given us commandments. Maybe it's fair to say, whether it be in that early stage in time, that later mosaic one, you and I are probably interested in today. Does God still give commands today? You and I know as we read from Matthew to Revelation, and we see in it these blessed 27 New Testament books, and we read about the way in which God delivers His will. Some have tried to make a count of how many commandments there are in the New Testament. One person estimated it at well over a thousand. I suppose in some way that may depend on how you wish to count some of them, but no doubt the fact remains the New Testament has so many commands within it. I would ask you to notice quickly 1 John 2, 3, even in this present age, a direct commandment. It says we have to keep His commandments as evidence that we know Him. If we don't obey Him, we don't know Him. That's what the inspired writer John told us. Didn't Jesus also say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments? John 14, 15. The blessed Savior then understood well that a part of that love of God manifested even in the New Testament era would be the presentation of commands. God hasn't left us just to do what we want, the way we want, when we want, for the reason we want. He has rather given us a set of commandments that, of course, we must dutifully not only consider but obey. We'll devote the rest of our lesson this morning to giving thought to the bottom of that slide and where it leads us. As you think about the commandments of God, there are some interesting distinctions that are easily to be made within them. Let's talk about some of those using not only the Ark of Noah as an example, but also the construction of the Ark of the Covenant and then making application to our life today. First of all, on this next slide, some of the commands of God are stated in ways that are rather general, stated in ways that do not have, at least on that particular occasion, so many specifics attached to it. Look at these examples concerning the ark that Noah constructed. We each remember that in Genesis chapter 6 through 8 is the record, and it's a rather compelling one about a mighty flood that filled the entire earth. And yet there was Noah who was told by God to construct an ark. And Genesis 6.22 still says, Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Whatever commandment then that God had given to him, Noah was dutiful and obedient to follow through with it. With that said, there are some things about the construction of that ark like this. What tools were to be used? Where was Noah to build it? Genesis chapter 6 just doesn't say. You and I can appreciate then that when God commanded Noah to build this ark, features like that were left to Noah's discretion. Features like that were left to his determination. How many axes did he use? We don't know. Were some of them sharper than others? Probably. Again, the fact remains we aren't given those specific details. But you'll notice in light of it, what about the Ark of the Covenant? 
You and I remember that when the tabernacle was being constructed, God pointed out that there was to be an ark of the covenant contained therein in the most holy place. Some specifics were told, some were not. Consider these. What tools were to be used to construct it? Exodus 25 doesn't say. How thick was to be the gold that was used to overlay it? The text doesn't say. All it said was overlay it with gold. That determination was left to the craftsmanship of those that carried it out. A generality contained within that commandment. Isn't it true? You and I then could ask, what about today? Are there still some commands, even in the New Testament, that are rather general? Consider this brief listing. What about 2 Corinthians 13.5? As you begin to look at this next set of ideas on the slide with me, could I just comment? I suspect it would be true that the things we're about to describe and discuss could be preached in any pulpit, in any church building, anywhere in the world this morning. Let's see if that isn't so. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Does it sound as if that would be a general enough but yet compelling message that frankly it could be preached and rather powerfully so nearly anywhere by any preacher? to examine your life, to understand whether or not you're consistent with some degree of faith. And yet we find that explicit message in 2 Corinthians 13.5. Consider the one that follows it. In 1 Thessalonians 5.22, Abstain from every appearance of evil. That sounds like wise advice. It sounds, doesn't it, like a message again that could very easily be shared nearly anywhere. I say that because, isn't it true, both of those are stated with direct commandments. We each remember when we studied grammar that when a command is stated often, the subject is understood. Think about the first one. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Who's the subject? All of us. The second one, abstain from all appearance of evil. Notice there's an understood subject of you that message is given to all of us. Am I abstaining? Are you from every appearance of evil? What a general commandment. Consider the third one. Matthew 5 verse 48. From the lips of our Savior Himself, as He came near the close of what we would call the first chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, He said, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. There is an admonition and, in fact, a strongly worded commandment to all who would strive to follow the Master. Be perfect. That word means complete, mature, always reaching for and striving unto a life of wholesome maturity and perfection in service to the Master. Would you agree that the first three we've considered, frankly, again, could be preached in so many ways? And most everyone would be able to receive messages from it. Look at the fourth one, Matthew 6.33. One chapter later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. One more time a commandment was stated. Seek first the kingdom of God. Again, it likely would be so. 
that those messages could be so widely heralded and people far and wide likely would find in it something that they could appreciate and be challenged by. One last example, 1 John 3.11, love one another. Maybe there's no message worldwide concerning Jesus that's proclaimed any more than His love. And yet those that would be dutiful servants of Him are taught love each other. Jesus told that to His own apostles in John 13, 34, did He not? By this shall all men know you're my disciples if you have loved one for another. All those things you and I have just studied are rather general commands, important to be sure. So much so that the bottom of the slide, it seems worthy to emphasize. Every command of God, even if it's worded in ways that are general, the Holy Spirit delivered it, and you and I should take and appreciate the wonderful truth that's contained in it. Commandments like those appear different, though, than some others. For you see, God is also a God of specific commandments. Those that aren't worded in ways that are left as general as these. The next slide. For you see, as you and I remember that ark that Noah constructed, and also that ark that was the Ark of the Covenant, not only were there some things, of course, left to the discretion of those that constructed it, there were a number of features that were extremely precise and extremely specific. Noah, what wood are you to use? Gopher. How do you know? God said so. There was no other wood to be used except that one. Noah, how many stories in it? Three. How do you know? God said so. How many doors are to be in it? One. God said so. One by one, there were additional statements about that ark, and you'll notice they were extremely precise and rather exacting. You and I could go forward and think also about the dimensions. That mighty vessel that Noah constructed, God even told him how long it was to be, 300 cubits. How wide it was to be, 50 cubits. How high, tall it was to be, 30 cubits. That's pretty precise, isn't it? Very specific. Noah was not left to go even a cubit less or more on any one of those dimensions. Again, wasn't it stated? Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Is it any wonder then in Hebrews 11 verse 7, Noah is lifted up as a great example of faith because he constructed that ark by faith. Meaning, of course, that he followed the orders and the commands that God gave, whether they were general or whether they were precise. I suppose you and I today should ask, if we are dutiful servants to God as well, should we be mindful of His general commands like loving each other? Sure. But should we be mindful as well of the specifics of His commandments too? Let's study that more intently. We could transition to think about the Ark of the Covenant as well. We noted earlier that there were some generalities about it. Were there any specifics? What were the dimensions of that Ark? God told them. They knew exactly how high, how wide, how long it was to be. They even knew what wood it was to be made of, acacia wood. They knew precisely. There were to be rings in it with stays passing through them. That's how it was to be carried. And that's how it was, of course, to be moved. God did make some specific statements, didn't He? 
as you and I consider all of them, why don't we think about then the Christian life of today? Specific commandments. In Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, as Paul preached that magnificent sermon there in the city of Athens, he said, In the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. You noticed with me, he commanded what? Repentance. That powerful word, repentance. It may be that there are some in our world then who would think, I want to be a servant to God, but I really don't want to change my life of sinfulness. I kind of like it, and I'm just going to keep doing it. But I'll trust God's grace to cover it. That's foolishness. God commands all men everywhere to repent. I cannot continue in a life of sin, habitual sin, expecting somehow God to cover all of that. For in His Word, He doesn't promise that anywhere. In fact, He teaches just the opposite because He commands men to repent. There were things that Paul had to change. He had to repent. There are things that Randy Bybee has to repent of. When I obey the gospel, and when you obey the gospel, He commands all men everywhere to repent. I would ask you to think then about that verse that we just noted in Acts 17. As Paul stood and preached that powerful lesson, there was an audience of people assembled on that occasion who in fact were so interested in things that related to wisdom. They loved hearing any new thing. You see, they were interested in taking things in, but they had all kinds of idolatrous images set up. And Paul says, I want to tell you about the one you call the unknown God. They needed to repent of idolatry. They needed to make a change in their appreciation and disposition concerning the one true God who Paul said is not far from any one of us. Repentance. What is repentance? It's a change of mind that manifests itself as a change of behavior, a change of action. That repentance is the same thing, of course, mentioned in Acts 2.38. There, a group of people assembled at Pentecost. They were reminded in Peter's powerful sermon, they put to death Jesus. They cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter wasn't left. With any ambiguity, he said, repent and be baptized. By the nature of their question, they believed. They knew exactly what they'd done. And now they wanted to know how to remove the guilt of putting to death the Son of God. And Peter told them it involved repentance. You and I may live 20 centuries this side of that day, but God still demands that we repent too. No wonder we need to examine our life so that the perfect mirror of the Word of God can inform us what do I need to be changing? And what direction should I be moving so that I can walk more perfectly in the light of God's commands and in His love? Look at the next one. I'm sure many in our world would say it's a great thing to be in Christ. But we aren't left in the Word of God in any question as to how that happens. How does a person come to be in Christ? 
In what way does a person put him or herself in a position to be said to be in Christ? Does it happen because I just want it to? Does it happen because somebody prayed over me? Does it happen because I've given some money to a congregation or something? No. In Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27, we, we read these unforgettable statements. You're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You and I joyously put on Christ when, and not until that moment, but when we are baptized into Him. You'll notice we find so many other passages then that highlight the marvelous occurrence that takes place on that occasion. No wonder you and I get so excited when a person makes the statement, I want to become a Christian, and they know well that happens because I want to be baptized. They come down this aisle or they call one of the elders or myself at home and they say, I want to become a member of the body of Christ. And we gather, we celebrate, we're so happy at the decision that person has made and we joyously baptize them into Christ. You'll notice then here God has been specific. A very specific way that one enters into Christ and there's no other way. No wonder Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, John 14, 6. Isn't it a fantastic thing then to appreciate that specificity? Consider yet the third one. God has said something about our worship services. He wants us here. The worship services are not just trivial matters that are be taken with a matter of flippancy to be here if I want to or not if I want to. We know that because of the manner in which so many verses describe them. I only ask you to consider that text in Hebrews 10. There, as those particular Christians were falling beneath the weight of terrible difficulties and problems, and many of them under the load of that matter were apostatizing. They were turning away from the truth. And the Hebrew writer said, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is. Some people are doing it, but don't you do it. You need to be here to exhort, to provoke, to encourage one another. Don't forsake the assemblies. And of course, faithful Christians for 20 centuries now have been excited to assemble with the saints. And we do so because we know God has commanded it. And we do so because not only in that regard, but we know that it pleases Him. But of course it benefits us. We get to provoke each other to love and good works, Hebrews 10, 24. We're able, of course, to exhort and to warn one another, 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. Maybe it's in light of that we notice one of the things we do here. God loves music, but He has told us what kind. Singing is what he said. You and I can try all we wish to sidestep, but the fact still remains. He has told us what music he wants in worship. And because he's the infinite creator, we desire simply to do that which he has said that he wants. In fact, it would be an affront to him to foist upon him what he, said he, has, what he has not said he wanted and expect him to be happy with it. We don't treat our earthly fathers that way. Why should we think God would be happy with it? 
speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, Ephesians 5.19. Isn't it a fascinating thing then to notice here in the midst of passages describing the worship of the church, He has said what music He wants. You and I lovingly strive to follow the, the specific nature of a commandment like that one. One by one, as you have looked at all of these, we might now come to that sweet consideration of the body of Christ. We know that church, the church which Jesus purchased... The church which the Lord established, it is lifted high within the pages of the New Testament. It is spoken of in ways such as there is one body, one church. Today, as you and I assemble as the Pippin Church of Christ, we are one body of faithful believers worldwide, but yet we too are important in the sight of God. There were local faithful congregations in the New Testament. What about the church that met at Philippi and the one at Colossae and the one at other locations such as Jerusalem? You happen to be such that we meet in the Pippin community of Putnam County. We're thankful to be able to do so. And we intend to be a faithful local congregation. And you and I have bonded ourselves beneath the umbrella of the powerful Word of the Lord. We do so beneath Jesus, our chief shepherd, also under our local shepherds, spoken of in 1 Peter 5, verses 1 to 4. In 1 Thessalonians 1, the ten verses of that chapter remind us how that those in Thessalonica, and that was the church of the Thessalonians, wasn't it said in verse 6, you followed us. They submitted themselves to the oversight of that local group of people, those elders there in Thessalonica, and they bonded their talents and capabilities and used them faithfully in God's service in that place. What a great compliment that was to that church. You and I are excited to be much like them. And so as we think about placing our membership here or making our determination to serve in this place, it's exciting. Because you and I, of course, are a testimony to the commands of God. One by one, as you look at all the specifics of these commandments, you could continue the list. I mentioned earlier some would count as many as a thousand or more commands in the New Testament. You know that when there's a wayward Christian, one of the things the church is ultimately given command to do touches an attempt to, in fact, help that person see the error of his or her way and to come back to his or her first love. The person, however, if he or she wishes to continue in a persistent sin, to live onward in that way. Jesus did say in Matthew 18, verses 15 and following, that, of course, that leads ultimately to church disfellowship, withdrawing of fellowship. And that word withdrawal is a very strong word, isn't it? This person is losing something that amazing. Fellowship of those who love the Lord, those who walk by faith, those who intend to stand pleasingly before the God of heaven in judgment. The person's willing apparently to forego those things. It's sad to notice that when that happens, the God of heaven has also given those commands. Have no company with. This person is losing something so precious, so remarkable. 
You're not to have fellowship. You're not to, in fact, share company with them in that way. Those social activities are to be no more in that regard. Perhaps the strongest statement of 2 Thessalonians 3.14 puts it in language like, have no company. And there at the bottom, the definition, you're not mingling with in the sense of, again, encouraging or approving or supporting that which the person is choosing to do. It does break one's heart that the person wishes to pursue and continue. But in love, in love, the New Testament describes it as if you hope that they finally will realize. Withdrawing a fellowship, of course, as Paul commanded it there of the Thessalonian church in 2 Thessalonians 3.6, he told them to do that. A direct, specific commandment, wasn't it? One by one, as we've looked at the commands on that sheet as well as the one previous, perhaps we can conclude our lesson like this. This slide highlights before us the following. What should you and I then do as we approach these commands of God, whether they be the general ones or whether they be the specific ones? You and I should conclude the following. It is a testimony of our love and our faith. At the most basic level, what is faith? Faith is saying to God, I'm going to do it your way, even if that's not consistent fully with what, the way I would do it. Ultimately, that's what faith is. And you and I, as we look at God's commands, we say to Him, we're going to do it your way because we love you and we know you're always right. Today, what about your life and what about mine? God's commands, whether specific or general, are all important. And they're all, of course, going to be brought to bear on the day of judgment. Are you living in harmony with them, every one of them? What about me? If we're not, and we're persisting to live in a way that's separate and apart from Him, why would we want to stay there? Why would we want to continue in that place? Our faith and the great love and command of God ought to bring us to His side. The image of Calvary is of the Son of God hanging in that place. I should have been there, and so should you. But that's a testimony to how much God wants us to understand His will and obey it faithfully. Today, if there's anyone in the audience that would be in a position to wish to make a public obedience to the commands of the Bible, perhaps you've never become a Christian, why not believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized? If you have done that, but you haven't been faithful, if your sins have been that which is known in a public way, God still loves you. But you must repent and confess those things and rush back to His side and He will forgive them. Beseech us to pray to God on your behalf. We'll be happy to do it, James 5.16. Today, if we could be of assistance to anyone, don't delay, but why not come even now while together we stand and while we sing?